I will tell you that the comments that he made when I was in the White House, I thought, were vile. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. We need more people from Norway, he said. Norway. They don't even take refugees in Norway, he said. Is it racist? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you take it any other way? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We try not to debase ourselves here on Trumpcast by talking about unsavory, lewd, and pervy subjects. But since our president debases himself and his office so relentlessly and keeps dragging us into the gutter, and we follow the orange wherever it leads, we're rising to the occasion this week or sinking to the occasion. Yesterday, Jacob told us about his encounters with an actress in Skin Flicks who got paid by the Trump syndicate not to disclose an affair she seems to have had with Donald Trump while he was married to Melania. Ick. And today we're talking about shit. Shitholes and shithouses and Trump's choice words about majority black nations from which he thinks America should accept no immigrants. I myself have submitted papers for a visa lottery in Port-au-Prince as Trump makes me want to renounce my citizenship in his own shithole. But for the rest of you concerned citizens... What is Trump's white supremacy going to make him do? Trump and race in year one is my topic today. And my guest is Jameel Smith, a contributing op-ed writer at the LA Times and a contributing editor at The New Republic. I'll be back in a minute with Jameel. Jamil, I finally have you on. I've wanted to have you on for so long. How are you? I'm great. How are you? So I thought we would um, start off on a very a civilized note, namely the eight-letter word shithole. Um, oh. What, <laughs> um, I don't know if you're a shithole or shithouse partisan. Uh, I, think, yeah. I think both are pretty bad. And in the context in which they were said, both pretty racist still. So yeah. not sure there's much of a difference. <laughs> I, I feel like the uh, commentariat just this week, somebody broke the chains and we were allowed to say after Trump declared uh, majority black nations shitholes that we were suddenly allowed to say Trump is a racist. Did you do you think that was the right inflection point to introduce that or, you know, or have you been saying that since 1973? <laughs> well, I wasn't around in 1973, but <laughs> the first time, as I wrote about in 2016, the first time Donald Trump ever came into my consciousness as a kid growing up in Ohio, not really reading the New York tabloids or any of that other mess, was the Central Park Five case. Right. When he published an ad in the New York Daily News and other papers, essentially calling for the state to murder these five black and brown teenagers who were accused of raping a jogger in Central Park. And so, you know, of course, they're, you know, we were later exonerated after serving, you know, more than a decade in prison. And even after that, Donald Trump is saying that the city's settlement for them was ridiculous. And so what I saw there, you know, this was the very first time that Donald Trump ever entered my consciousness was by him doing something racist. So yeah. when I see folks now, after his housing discrimination case in the 70s, after the Central Park Five, after all of the comments over the years, and more importantly, all the actions over the years, and then you even get to the campaign, I, I just don't understand why it took people so long to suddenly uh, get courageous and uh, and proclaim that he is racist. You know, we're here partly to go over this past year. And one of the one of the points on the timeline, speaking about Trump's relationship to race, was the suspension of Jamel Hill from ESPN for calling Trump a white supremacist. At that point, 
I realized that words like racist and white supremacist were now being seen as the epithets and not descriptive. So mm-hmm. calling Trump a racist is not calling him an asshole. It's calling him a person who used to a to an ideology with a long history and with predictive power. So we can know a little bit about what he's going to do after he you know, took out an ad uh, calling for the extra for the execution of the Central Park Five. We know a little bit about what he's going to do in 1973 when he was um, he and his father were settled a discrimination case, a real estate discrimination case, and we know a lot from what the ideology of white supremacy is. Um, Jamel Bowie on our show has talked a lot about this, and I wonder what kind of predictive power this has had for you through this year. Well, I think. Let's start with the what you mentioned with Jamel, who is a friend of mine. Yeah. And when I saw that happen, all I could think about was uh, the greatest victory of the conservative push for white supremacy through policy, through our culture, whatnot. They've made it a greater sin to call out racism than to actually be racist. They've made it seem divisive. They've made it seem uh, uncomfortable. And... You know, this is why you have peaceful protesters for Black Lives Matter being regarded as terrorists, because they are making white people uncomfortable. And that is, you know, that's that is a greater sin than actually committing racist acts or suffering under uh, or, or making people suffer under racist policies. That is what we saw with Jamel. We saw people being scared mm-hmm. of that word. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I say it a lot because I like to acknowledge reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> a as a journalist, of yours, yeah. um, and that, that is, that is just something that, you know, we need to wrap our minds around. And, and I sincerely hope that more white people become comfortable with discussing race, um, and understanding the effects of racism and, and recognizing it when it presents itself, because we are in an urgent moment right now. This is not, this is not, this is not a game. Um, you have, you know, the birther in chief in the Oval Office, putting his personal bias into policies that are going to affect virtually every American. Yeah. And you have, you have Betsy DeVos pushing for charter schools, which there's a whole big debate about whether charter schools hurt or help black communities. But I mean, these, these are policies that, uh, that frankly, you know, are not geared with, they're not geared towards, you know, improving these communities. They're geared towards profiting off of those communities. And so you have this entire apparatus being shaped by in this cakeistocracy that Trump has formed. And we need to understand the effects of the mechanics of racism more so than obsessing over the things that he says. Let's use those moments as in a more constructive fashion. One of the debates after the election was that the, quote, Democratic Party was in shambles or in tatters or they would never rise again from the ashes. And clearly the Democrats have distinguish themselves by a, a level of dignity that, that has not been seen in the other party this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so much that we're at closing out the year by pe- people saying the Republican Party's in shambles going into the 2018 midterms. Talk me through how you think the Democrats have handled this year. Uh, I think we've heard a lot of wonderful, vociferous words of dissent and resistance from Democrats. Uh, Cory Booker, Maxine Waters, uh, Kamala Harris, my senator here in California, all come to mind. But I think that, you know, for all the words that we've heard, we've still seen 
Democrats voting to approve Trump nominees. We've still seen Democrats voting to expand Trump's surveillance powers, which mm-hmm. have been proven to be used uh, more, I'd say, you know, extrajudiciously mm-hmm. against communities of color through the past. And all these policy things have gone unaddressed. And we're about to see now this week, potentially with DACA, Democrats fold to keep the government running. And for what? Why are you giving in to what is essentially a ransom demand by this president in canceling DACA and saying, well, if you want this DACA back, this DACA hostage that I'm keeping, you're going to have to fund my wall. You're going to have to fund all these regressive priorities that I have. And the idea that they would cave to that is, is rather sickening to me. So I think the Democrats really need to be even more attentive to the passion and the fervor of their voters mm-hmm. who understand the urgency of the moment, I think, a little bit better than they do. So, you know, one of the things we've touched on a little bit um, on Trumpcast is the possibility that Congress is so, as they used to say, of, of the Carter administration overcome by events, OBE, that managing, you know, this drunk and dangerous father in the form of Donald Trump is a full-time job that they they can't seem to get their head above water to like get their think through ideology. So that's that's a, and even think through think about the future. But one of the things I, I guess if we're talking about how the Democrats handled this year, I think one of the things they've done is just try so hard to wish it away. Right. Right. And I think look, I, I wrote early last year about why impeachment should be at the forefront of the Democratic agenda. Personally, I think it's politically smart for them to do so. I think it's politically smart for them to help voters understand the stakes of the 2018 midterm elections. Mm -hmm. If you vote more of us in, if you can get a majority in the House and perhaps even the Senate, it is possible, then maybe we can end this. That I don't I I think the, the urgency for doing that remains. And I think that that's fine. I think he's obviously demonstrated that he is completely unfit for office. And I think that it's more important to have an operational presidency than it is to leave him in there, hoping that, you know, this one thing that he's useful for, which is to illuminate our cultural divides, we can do that without him in office. Okay. So listen, I I think that it's, it's politically smart for people, you know, in the, on the, in the democratic party to campaign on this. That said, I think that, you know, there are, you know, legislative actions that they need to be pushing um, in order, or, or at least, you know, figure out ways to obstruct this this agenda of his. That, to me, is the is the most urgent thing. When you say that um, it's advantageous for Democrats to to run on this, by this you mean, let's just call it impeachment. Um, yes. I just I spoke to someone running for Congress in a red state. He said that there's almost a pact among not far left, but, you know, candidates, especially running in red states from the Democratic Party, there's almost a pact that they won't say impeachment. Mm. You know, that the intimation, let's just be sure everybody knows that it's Congress that has to take Mueller's recommendations and impeach. That's just as a point of civics. Everyone should know that. On the other hand, you know, I want what's best for the people of Montana. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I think that there was, especially pre-Bannon-Trump divide, I think there was like great alarm about offending the base and also 
offending more mainstream Republicans that, as they did in Alabama, might cross over to the Democrats if they thought that it was simply a vote for impeachment of a president of their party? I think that there is a possibility of Republicans certainly standing in the way of it. Yeah. That said, at some point, the health of the the, the republic and our democracy have to be a priority over the political career yes. of this man. They, yeah. they, Republicans seem to forget that they have been effective as a party before him, mm-hmm. and they will be effective after him. I definitely do not buy this notion that Trump some is somehow ending the Republican Party or killing it or, you know, or shuttering it for generations to come. Mm-hmm. They are a lot of Republican voters. Nearly 63 million people voted for this man. Mm-hmm. Now that, of course, is not a majority, as we've been often reminded, but it is not an insignificant part of this country's population, which we should not, you know, we should not disregard these people. But we should understand what these people have, you know, inflicted upon us. Mm-hmm. And we should Republican Party, had they any integrity, would be instead of, you know, doing things like Jeff Flake is doing, like doing showy speeches right. about how Trump is like Stalin and then continuing to vote for every priority that the Trump administration has. Instead of trying to signify and perform this this dissent, mm-hmm. I would much rather see the, the Republican Party adhere to its conservative principles and actually, you know, push for the, you know, what they say is limited government. I think Trump, Trump actually represents the antithesis of limited government. And I, I still, I don't really hold out too much hope for Republicans to get it, but I think the only way that they're going to get it is through political loss. And if the losses in 2018 are substantial enough, mm-hmm. then, uh, and perhaps they will, uh, change their minds out of pure survival instincts. So I want to wrap up, but I uh, before we go, I know you've written, without getting too far into the weeds of, you know, the other big story of the year, which is, you know, obviously Me Too and now Time's Up. What do you think going into the Women's March, we can uh, Women's March anniversary, we can look for? Are you going to march? Well, I, I'm a journalist, so I, I, stay out of, I stay out of the activist space. Yeah. Um, I'm, I would be happy to cover it. I'm a journalist, um, but I wear my politics like a Celtic tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you'll likewise, be happy to I'm cover very it. glad that I can get paid to uh, to opine about the issues and not simply uh, feign objectivity. That said, um, I, I think what we've seen here is an emboldening of you know women who survived uh, sexual harassment and abuse. They decided to speak up themselves, and and they have empowered millions of women to tell their own stories. And I think what we're doing, we're in the middle of a complicated time in which we have to, you know, wrap our minds around the various nuances of sexual politics. And I think we're seeing that play out in, frankly, this Aziz Ansari story uh, about this uh, terrible date. Uh, This young woman went on with him and she was extraordinarily sexually aggressive and certainly seemed not to understand what consent was at all. And I've always said at the core of this is believe women, believe women when they tell you these things, because there is no societal advantage that they gain by telling their story. Yeah, sure. There may be, you know, a lot of kudos and very courageous. I, you know, I said as much on Twitter yesterday to Simone Biles when she came forward about the team doctor who abused her and, you know, more than a hundred other gymnasts. 
I think it's extraordinarily courageous, but I can't imagine the amount of abuse that she knows that she has opened herself up to. And that is, that is a defect in our society that, uh, that needs to go, you know, be, be more, uh, fastidiously addressed. I think that you're right to bring up the the Aziz Ansari is a case is a case of testimony of really useful testimony by someone who felt uh, she was a victim of some kind of sexual non-consensual sexual experience. But it's not the same whistleblowing act that the Olympians or the Weinstein victims who were exposing widespread corruption with money invested in it with cover-ups that's where i think the me too movement parallels the investigation into the trump administration because there is just so much money spent on smear campaigns on silencing on uh, you know uh shoring up power by those in power and you know covering their um, sexual crimes at the expense of victims who, you know, then are also have their careers stumped like Mira Sorvino or have um, ha- or, you know, find themselves smeared in the press. I think one other commonality is yeah. uh, the existence of gaslighting uh, yes. in both cases by the person who is alleged to be the perpetrator. <laughs> Not necessarily on sorry per se, but I'm talking about broadly the people who are accused um, in these more public accusations, you know, come forward in some instances and said, uh, that just did not happen. Yeah. Uh, I was not there. That yeah. person is lying. This person is misrepresenting the events. And you see Donald Trump, you know, everything from the Russia scandal, uh, saying that no collusion, he just unprompted. He just tells us, we're like, yeah. okay, man, chill. Like we yeah. get it. No collusion. And, you know, he's, he's having whisper campaigns, uh, within the Oval Office about how it wasn't even him. On the Access Hollywood tape, you know, he apparently it was reported in November that it, you know when he was president-elect, he was telling everybody, "Oh, that actually wasn't me. I don't know if that was me on the tape." After he'd already admitted it publicly, I mean, this is this is a society in which we, we're trying. You know, a lot of folks are trying to make it post-fact. Yes, and that's why both journalism is important, and that's why the testimony of people who are marginalized, who have been victimized. And who have survived abuse, you know, whether it's at a uh, societal level or at a personal level, it's why it's important for voices to be heard. And I think to tying that back into the Women's March, that's why, I mean, that that was such a, a groundbreaking event because it made the whole world see immediately that there was a massive constituency within this country rejecting this president. Thank you very, very much for being here, Jamil. That was illuminating in the extreme, as usual, with your work. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And you just got to follow us on Twitter. It's at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. Follow us on Twitter. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.